looking at Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. This morning we're going to be looking at what J.I. Packer, the late Anglican theologian who just passed away three years ago, we're going to be looking at what he said is the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. I'm going to beginning, begin reading back in chapter 10 and verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author of Hebrews is writing to these Christians to encourage them in their faith. Uh, he wants them to, to focus and not neglect their salvation. He, he wants to recalibrate their thinking so that they won't fall away. Uh, he wants them to mature and grow it out of uh, their season of, of needing theological milk and Christian infancy so that they can grow to a stature where they can handle solid spiritual food. So he's concerned about them, but he's optimistic about, about them. He's optimistic about their, their status and their true faith. But that doesn't mean that they don't need encouragement. So verse 26 of Hebrews 10, he says, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you can receive what was promised. So despite the fact that things might be hard for them right now, we know that they're, uh, this is very likely in response to uh, some persecution, that they're suffering because of their identification with, with Jesus Christ. Despite that things are hard right now, he wants them to know the preciousness of what they have and the glory of what's, what's yet to come. And so as he moves into chapter 11, he focuses on the key element of, of perseverance, of this endurance that they, that they need. The key element is faith. So who are Christians? Christians are, according to verse 39 of chapter 10, Christians are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but, are, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Depending on the translation that you have, it, it might not say preserve their souls there. It might say 
something just that's trying to simplify it to just give you the main point of the text there. It might say something like, those who have faith and are saved, but, but the uh, uh, more literal rendering, you might say, is those who preserve their souls. So we're not talking about the preservation here of something trivial. We're, we're talking about something incredibly valuable. People go to great lengths to preserve their homes and their cars and their jobs and reputations. But this is something even more personal. This is something even more lasting. You know, Think of the, the lengths that people go to to preserve their bodies and preserve their, their lives. But this is something even more valuable than that. This is something that Jesus recognized the value of when he asked rhetorically in Matthew 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is nothing. There's nothing. You can't exchange anything for your soul and end up with something something better. Nothing. And the key to preserving your soul is faith. And if that's true, if the key to preserving the most important possession you have is faith, then it's really important to understand what what faith is. And the author of Hebrews knows it's important, which is why he spends the whole next chapter here helping us understand what faith is and giving us a picture of what it looks like. So so this morning what we're going to do, at the beginning of chapter 11, we're going to look at faith described in verse 1, faith commended in verse 2, and then faith engaged, the beginning of what faith looks like in verse 3. So let's look at faith described. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, he describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So no, notice first where faith is active. Where, where does faith become relevant? Faith becomes relevant when things are out of reach, when you can't quite get to them. Uh, faith is not active when you already have something. Right? It's active when there's something that you're hoping for yet. Something that you don't have in full yet. You don't hope for things that you already have. Right? Or faith is, is not active when things are visible. Faith is active when things are invisible. And this is connected to hope. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. When he, he writes, Now hope that is seen is not hope. Hope that's seen... That's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't hope for things that you can already see, that you already have. Now, faith is active when things are out of reach. Out of reach chronologically, that is something that that has not yet come about, and and out of reach visually. That is, our full sense experience can't confirm it. So it has to be confirmed another way. It has to be embraced another way. So, and that's, that's the environment of faith. It, 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 it comes into play when things are out of, our, out of our reach. But the substance of faith he describes here with, with two words, at least the, uh, translated in the ESV, it's the words assurance and conviction in verse 1. There's, there's some debate surrounding, surrounding how, how to translate what, what's going on grammatically in, in, uh, in, in verse 1 here. And some of the debates just tra- this has to do with translating this, this word that's translated assurance 
in the ESV. This is a word that has kind of a broad semantic range. So like back in, for example, in Hebrews 1, uh, this word is translated nature. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's the exact same word. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, the word is translated confidence. In Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original, original confidence firm to the end. So in this context, we could say faith is the confidence of things hoped for. So it's, it's important, we've got to be careful about reading a, a word's whole semantic range into one particular instance of it, but, but it, in this case, uh, a, a word with a broad semantic range is being used intentionally. And, and, and so once I do think some of these, these different ways of translating it can be helpful. Faith is, is the nature, it's the substance of, of hope. It's the, it's the nature of hope, it's at the center of what we're doing when we're hoping. Faith is, is the confidence of that hope. It's the assurance of that hope. The, the 17th century Puritan Thomas Matton, he distinguishes faith and hope like this. I think this is helpful. He says, faith, faith makes all things certain and in a sort already present. But hope looks out for the full accomplishment. Faith gives us a right and persuades us of the truth of things promised, and hope looks after the manifestation of them in, in possession. Here's what I think is really helpful, what he says. He says, faith is the hand, and hope is the eye of the soul. Faith lays hold upon the promise, and hope looks out after the things promised. Faith awakens hope, and hope cherishes faith bringing in constant support to it. So he says faith faith or sorry hope is, hope is like the eye of the soul. It's the eye of the soul that looks out after the things that are promised. And then faith is the hand of the soul that lays hold of the promise. So we're talking about invisible realities here. We're talking about things that we cannot see. For visible realities, you just reach out your hand and you grab them. But for invisible realities, you reach out and you grab them by faith or with faith. Some people describe themselves as, as uh, or they, they, would, they would hold the opinion that, that, that people are, uh, that faith is just a matter of religion. It just belongs in, the, in, in, in this kind of nice sectioned off part of our lives, the religious part of our lives. So, uh, and, and not everybody has a religious part of their life. So you have someone who would describe themselves as, you know, I'm a person of faith, right? And the subtle implication of that, I'm, I'm a person of faith, it, it kind of implies that, so the default for human beings must be that they just operate in the, in the realm of, of, of raw, self-evident facts. But then you have some people who open themselves up to this other thing, which is the, the realm of, of faith. Uh, but that isn't true. That isn't how human beings function. And, and that's definitely not what the author of Hebrews 11 is, is teaching us here. Every human being believes things based on faith. Every human being exercises faith. Faith, faith is involved in any belief that isn't confirmed by your sense experience. Technically, faith is even involved in trusting your sense experience, but... 
that gets down into some deep philosophical hallways that are pretty dark, I think. Uh, human beings exercise faith every day. We, we live by faith believing that this thing that we call gravity is, is going to continue to hold us and all of our belongings close to the surface of the earth. We, we live by faith that the sun is going to continue burning tomorrow and that the heat that it hits the earth with is going to be contained in the atmosphere, that the greenhouse gases are going to continue to work as they have before and that we're going to be able to sustain human life. Right? We live by faith in the words of, of other people. We live by faith believing that, that the bank that said it was holding a certain amount of money when they closed yesterday in your account, is going to be holding that same amount of money tomorrow, or at least not less than it, right? Or we live by faith in the words of other people that they've given us either vocally or by a mutual agreement in society. So for example, that, that the person driving the car at 65 miles an hour in the lane adjacent to you coming at you is going to stay in that lane and not veer into your lane. And you wouldn't drive anywhere or ride with anyone anywhere if you didn't have a kind of faith in that agreement, that, that promise, that word that they have given. And we could go on and on and on with, with these types of things. Human beings, all human beings are, are people of faith. The question is, faith in what? And the author of Hebrews he isn't, he isn't just pressing us to cultivate just sort of a general kind of generic faith, just sort of kind of, you know, uh, wide-eyed optimism about the future or something like that. Now, faith in Hebrews 11 is nothing until it latches on to something, and until it reaches out and grabs on to something that it hopes for. And the origin... Of faith, it, it can come from two, at least two places. We could we could distinguish it further, but it's either going to come from two places. It's either going to come from within you or outside of you, right? So you can dream up something, you can hope for something, and then you can reach out for it by by faith. But most people don't put their hopes in things that come from their own imaginations. Now that might be less and less true in our own day and in our own society, but just in general, that's 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 not as helpful to put your faith in things that you imagine out of your own, your own mind. So, otherwise, faith has to come from things outside of yourself. It has to come from an outside authority or an outside benefactor or an outside promise. Typically, it's, it's the promise of things outside of us that invoke hopes within us. So, smells in the kitchen invoke hopes of supper. Right? Or the sight of melting snow invokes hopes of spring coming. The, the testimony of your friend to pay you back the $100 he owes you invokes the hope of having extra cash in your, in your pocket. In Hebrews 11, the, the presumed origin of faith comes from God Himself. And it comes from His Word and from His promises that He gives us through His Word. God promises to overcome the curse of sin and death. His, his promises are oriented at our biggest problem. He promises to atone and for, to forgive sins. He promises to judge 
and destroy evil. He promises to wipe away pain and sadness. And so those kinds of promises, they invoke hopes. And the difficulty is that all those things are out of sight. All those things are not something that you can just look at and see for yourself. They're not visible. And so often for us, as human beings, as people who have this material existence, is, is we're so focused on sense experience, what we can confirm with our senses, and just the immediate moment, what we're experiencing right now. What am I feeling and sensing right now? What we can hear and see and taste and smell and feel right now seems the most urgent. And so if there's any pain or discomfort right now, we're often looking for the quickest way to relieve that pain and discomfort. And that's, that's, that's normal. That's not an accident. It's not an accident that we're material beings. But most of God's promises, they're future-oriented. They draw us out of the present moment to a future. And they're invisible. The only way that you have them, or the primary way you have them, is, is by faith. So if I can quote Thomas Manton one more time, I realize his language is a little chunky, but he's 400 years old, so give him a break. Okay? He writes, Faith gives us heaven because in the promise, it gives us a title to heaven. We are sure that we have that to which we have a title. A right is enough, though there be not always an actual feeling. He has a grant, God's word, to assure him of it. So he says, Faith is like a title. When you buy a house or you buy a car, you get a title, right? And that means, the title means it's yours. If you got that piece of paper, it's yours. People observe, you know, about uh, the younger generations or a younger generation or millennials or whatever, that they're, this is an entitled generation. What do people mean when they say that? They're, they're basically saying, you think that things belong to you that, that you haven't earned a title to yet. Right? But if you have a title to something, you're entitled to it. It's yours. And faith, faith in the Christian life is like a title. It guarantees all of God's promises. It supports and sustains us in the Christian life because we know we have what we have a title to. Christian, Christianity, it's a religion centered on Faith. Faith is at the center of, of, of what we do, which is different from other, other religions. Some people don't like this about Christianity. Sam was just telling me this week about a popular uh, Jewish cultural and political commentator who understands the gospel. He could articulate the gospel just as well, if not better than us. And yet he thinks that faith, it's too weak as a central element to religion. He doesn't think faith is transformative enough. He thinks the law is stronger. The law, I mean, he would admit we exercise faith. He's not against faith, but faith as the central element of, of religion isn't, isn't strong enough. What we need is the law. It's God's commands that are actually more reliable and more steady 
and more transformative. But Christianity teaches the exact opposite, at least according to the at least according to the New Covenant, which is what we read about in, in Hebrews. Right? God's blessings are accessed not through obedience, but by Christ through faith. God's plan for our transformation in the New Covenant is not obey and be counted righteous. His plan for our transformation is believe by faith and be counted righteous. And it continues. This continues in the Christian life. This isn't just one thing and then move on, but this is how Christians continue to endure and persevere. It's, it's not persevere in obedience so that you can maintain your faith. It's persevere in faith and maintain your obedience. And so the, this is what the author is writing in texts like Hebrews 6. He, he wants them to not be sluggish so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators who through faith and patience, inherit the promises. He doesn't say through obedience. It's not that obedience doesn't matter, but the central element there is faith. Through imitators who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The way, the route to having God's promises, obtaining God's promises is through faith. Or like he says up in chapter 10 in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. For their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's faith. Faith that sets us right before God. It's faith that we exercise as we persevere and endure in the Christian life. Obedience is critical. It's not outside of the frame of Christianity. Obedience is critical in the Christian life, but obedience isn't the central element in the Christian life. Ultimately, obedience if that's in the center of your life, that ultimately places you in the center of your faith, in the center of, 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 of religion, in the center of, of everything. If obedience is, is central, you're central. But if faith is central, God's promises and God's work are in the center. So as the author of Hebrews encourages these Christians to persevere, his, his emphasis is faith, which is why he dedicates here a whole chapter to faith. What faith is, and actually most of it, what faith looks like when, when it's engaged. But before it's engaged, look at verse 2. After he describes faith, we see faith commended. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.2 For by faith, for by it, the people of old received their con- commendation. Just two quick observations here, the first is that God commends faith. This is what God commends. The, God is the kind of God who commends people. Now we know that God is also the kind of God who condemns people. Right? We've just been reminded of that in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. Right? God is a God of vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. God will judge sin. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But God does not only condemn, there are people who He commends. And what's interesting is it's not always those who we would expect. That becomes clear as we read through Hebrews chapter 11. If the Old Testament is a record of anything, it's a record of the sins of God's people. Again and again 
and again. And yet God commends these people. And what is, so, what is he commending? Is it, because of the, is it because that their good things that they do is ultimately weighing their, outweighing their bad things? Is that the system in place? Is that what we find God doing in the Old Testament? Now the ones God commends, those are the ones that he finds pleasure in. Ones that he says, you are mine, are those who have faith, those who believe and who trust in his promises. So don't miss the motivation here. Don't miss what he's trying to motivate us with. God commends those who have faith. It's what he's been doing for thousands of years. Your ability to be on the commending side rather than on the condemning side of God's righteousness is not connected to your past record of righteousness. Whatever's in your past doesn't disqualify you. It's not even connected to your future record of righteousness. That's what's really incredible. This doesn't mean that your past sins or your future sins don't matter. They do matter. Your past sins, to one degree or another, have wreaked havoc in your life. Your future sins have the potential of wreaking more havoc in your life. You still might experience the effects of sinful choices in the past today. Your sins do matter. They are offensive to God, but they're not the basis on which God will commend you or not. The difference between being on the side of God's commending rather than His condemning righteousness is not based on your sin. It's based on your faith. God commends those who cling to His promises. No matter how hard our circumstances, there's circumstantial suffering in the world, there's temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is persecution for those who identify with Jesus. Christianity is a public religion. Remember the people of old. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. God commends those who reach out in faith and cling to his promises. Those are the ones God commends. Those are the ones he promises to receive and relieve and bless. Which leaves at least two questions. I think we can clarify a little bit more clearly. What is that which we're supposed to put our faith in? And then what does this faith look like? We'll look at those in, in reverse, reverse order. If, if verse 1 describes the act of faith, verse 3 begins describing the effects of faith, or faith engaged. Once faith, what faith looks like once it's engaged, once it's grasped. The rest of the chapter, it's, it's designated for illustrations of what this this looks like. But the author moves, as he moves through chapter 11, he, he moves through uh, looking at Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, chronologically. And so he begins in this first example in Genesis 1. We don't have a name there because there's no one to be named. We don't even have Adam and Eve yet created, where, where the author begins here in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So 
in Genesis we begin where every, every single human being has to exercise faith, right? There's no eyewitnesses of creation. No one can, no one can see it. No one remembers it. So whatever your explanation is for the origin of the universe, you're exercising some kind of, some kind of faith. Reason can be helpful, but, but reason can only take us so far. Reason can help us know that there's some ex- explanations that are better than others, right? So for example, the explanation of, well, there is no beginning, there is no creation, it's just this infinite regress. Reason can help us here to understand that that's, that's pretty irrational. Right? If there's an infinite amount of time before you, um, your existence is somewhat problematic because it hasn't gotten here yet. There's an infinite amount of time before we get to you. So just these are, these are logic games and, and reason games, but reason can help us know that some explanations for the origin of the universe are better than others. So reason can help us recognize that at some point there has to be an uncaused Cause. If every effect has a cause, you have to come to a certain starting point, right? The pulpit is here. The pulpit is an effect, right? The pulpit's here because there was wood. There was wood because there was a tree. There was a tree because someone planted it, and on and on and on. You have to get to the beginning of something that was never caused at some point, right? Reason can help us here. But reason can only take us so far, reason do not, cannot, does not give us answers to, is the, is the first cause personal or impersonal? Uh, is the first cause, uh, or how did the first cause create? Or, or what is our relationship with the first cause today? Reason is less helpful once we start to ask probing and more meaningful or questions like that. And of course, the predominant view in our own day, in our own culture today is what we'd call naturalism or materialism. Naturalism, that everything in the universe can be explained by nature, or that materialism, that everything in the universe is made of matter. There's nothing beyond matter. There is no supernatural. There's only natural. There's nothing that goes beyond nature. And naturalism and materialism, they're enticing. They're enticing. Besides the fact that just for some reason in our own culture today, people just think you're smart and sing your praises if you, if you affirm naturalism. Uh, maybe what's even more compelling about them is that naturalism and materialism, they abolish condemnation. This is a way you can find salvation. One of the ways you can get rid of condemnation, at least in your own mind, is through naturalism. Right? If there is no supernatural God to condemn, then there is no condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who only live in a material universe. But that comes with another, maybe perhaps unintended, side effect. If there's no supernatural God to condemn, there's also no supernatural God to commend either. So naturalism and materialism, there is nothing commendable, there's also nothing... And there's nothing condemnable, there's also nothing commendable. And we wonder why, why a society that would embrace that so enthusiastically would also be trying to figure out why we've got such incredible rates of depression and anxiety and suicide and on and on and on. 
But even materialism is a matter of faith, uh, whether it wants to admit it or not. You must believe in materialism that, that nature can somehow cause itself. Now, reason can't tell you that. Revelation can't tell you that. So there's one sense in which it takes even more faith to believe in naturalism. In one sense, it's pure faith. It doesn't come from reason or revelation. Christianity embraces both reason and revelation and then asks us to go somewhere in the, in the direction with both those, both those things. Reason, Christianity, reason can take you somewhere, but it, don't, it just recognizes it can only take you so far. The Christian rests his or her faith not ultimately in reason, but in revelation. God's explanation for the universe is not irrational, but the answers that we have come, the clear answers that we have, come from more than just what is reasonable. It also comes from revelation. So, revelation tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so that, Hebrews 11.3, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is what we call the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. God creates out of nothing. What we have did not come from material that already existed. It came from a God who is uncaused, who can just speak, and material can come into being. We don't know that because we can test it with our sense experience. We don't know that through reason. We know that because of Revelation. We can't see God. We can't see creation. We believe it based on a word of testimony. A word like Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. God made all things through His powerful word. And so we don't fully comprehend it. We don't fully understand it. But we know it, we understand it to be true that all material things came into existence from an immaterial being, the triune God of, of Scripture. We know it by revelation, and then we believe it by faith. It's not something you know through science, it's also, but, it's not, that is a, it, but it's, not inco it's not disconnected from science. It actually makes science possible and intelligible. And just similarly, we don't know it through reason, but it's not ir irrational. So this is the first example of faith, what it looks like when it's engaged. And then there's many, many more examples to come throughout the rest of, of chapter 11. But this leaves us to answer more clearly, faith in what? Where does Scripture in general, in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in particular, direct us as the center of our Faith. It's not disconnected from verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. By, under, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When we believe by faith that the universe was created by the Word of God, remember how the author of Hebrews introduces us to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. This just happens to be the verse that uh, the kids on Wednesday nights, one of the verses they memorized this last week, Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also 
Anyone got it? What did say it? Through whom also he created the world. The universe was created by the word of God, Hebrews 11. The universe was created by the Son of God, Hebrews 1. So when it comes to faith, Scripture does not ask us to choose between the Word of God and the Son of God. God has spoken to us through His Word, and in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The central focus of our faith is Christ. The central focus of our faith is the Word of God, who is not just a word, who is not just a it, it's a who. It's not just a that, not just, not just a which, it's a, it's, a, it's a who. Christ is the greatest agent of revelation, and he's also the greatest agent of, of redemption. The reason God can commend you and not condemn you is because of the Son. It's because of Christ the Redeemer. Christ is the opposite of you. You lack righteousness, and, but you don't lack guilt. You lack righteousness, you don't lack guilt. Christ lacks guilt, and Christ doesn't lack righteousness. So God puts forward Christ for you, the all-sufficient sacrifice and sin-bearer, as the epitome, as the greatest source, as the greatest example of His revelation to you. He, His righteousness is the perfect righteousness that's accounted for you. And all the blessings that He has by virtue of His life and death and resurrection are yours. How? How do you reach out and grab those? How do those become yours? How do you become in union with Him? Through faith. As it says in the Second London Baptist Confession, faith thus receiving, receiving, you reach out and receive it. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, the alone instrument of of justification, the alone instrument of being made right, the alone instrument of what God uses to commend you rather than to condemn you. God is right to condemn all those who sin against Him. He is in the right when He does that. But God commends those who trust in Him by faith, who receive and rest on Christ and His righteousness alone. So the question isn't so much, do I have faith? I mean, you could start there. But the question is, in whom do I have faith? Is your faith in yourself? That's, you, hear, you hear that a lot today. Have faith in yourself. Oh man, you're honest with yourself. Where is that going to go? How, how are you really going to get very far if you embrace that creed? Is your faith in the word of someone in this world? Are you, are you ultimately hoping for the promises promised to you by someone in this world to have something in this world? Or is your faith in a, in a feeling? Is it in an instinct? Is it in, a, in an experience? All those things. All those things will fail you. All those things will ultimately just decay and pass away. All those things will leave you on the brink of eternity with a failing body and a guilty conscience. The 
question is, is your faith in Christ? Christ is the only one who can bear the weight of all of your hopes. And He's the only one who can bear the weight of all of your sins. All of your hopes and all of your sins. The only one who can hold those things for you is Christ. Is your faith in Christ? Or is it in anywhere else? Is the question for all of us. This is why J.I. Packer said, or was of the opinion, that faith, he said, faith is the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world is faith. He went on to say, faith is the link between ourselves and a God of transforming love who saves us from sin and folly and ultimate disaster, who brings us into a life of joy and peace and wisdom and fruitfulness. Faith means, quite simply, trusting Him and believing what He's told us. And remember, the real God, the God of the Scriptures, the God who has revealed Himself, who has spoken, He has given us promises to trust, and faith trusts them. And the effect of trusting the promises, of trusting the God of the promises, is literally transforming. He says, whoever you are, whoever you are, you need this. You need true faith. So as we walk through this life, as we suffer, as we're tempted, as we're even, persecuted for the name of Christ in whatever form that takes. By faith we have hope and by faith we rejoice. I'm going to end with the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6-9. Just, just hear these words in light of what we've considered in Hebrews 11 this morning. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Father, it is so easy to put our hope in what we can see. What we see so often assures us so much. And, so, and, and that's not outside of your design. But we hope too much in what we can see. It's so easy to walk through this life as if our actions and our obedience and our thoughts are the center of the universe. As if everything ultimately exists for us. So often our, our faith is, is in ourselves. It's not in ourselves, it's in the word of a deceiver who finds countless ways to promise us 
you will not surely die. Those are words of death rather than words of life. Father, we know that the universe was not created by us, and it was not created for us. The universe was created by your word, through your son, and all things exist from him, and to him, and for him. So Father, we ask that you would help us to put our faith in the one who is truly central, the one who is our only hope. Father, would you help us to cling to Christ by faith, the one who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and help our faith to be oriented toward your promises, the hope of your rewards, your blessings. Father, would you give us Christ and keep us in him. We pray in Jesus' name.